And verse 3. Now, remember I said uh, when we started this chapter that uh, this is one of the most uh, debated chapters in the entire Bible. And uh, so it's most of that is because of verse 3. Now, if I were a Presbyterian elder and I had a Reformed Baptist up here teaching on this verse 3, I'd be a little bit concerned. But rest assured, uh, it does not mean what you think it means. Okay? So, and in other words, I will in no wise dissent from the Westminster this morning, mostly because this verse does not mean what you think it means. As I've stated on last week, there are dozens, literally dozens, of differing interpretations regarding this chapter, and the one that I'm going to posit for you this morning uh, is going to differ a little bit from most of them. So we'll do our best in as much as God grants us grace uh, to do so to explain this text. Now, in order to get a clear view into its meaning, we're going to go all the way back to chapter 5. Yes, your Bible should open automatically to that section since we've been there a while. Uh, and verse 12, as a reminder of what Paul is teaching these Roman Christians and what he wants them to know about their great salvation. Um, so remember I said that most of the commentaries say that chapter 6 starts a whole new section, a whole new thing. 1 through 5 is about justification, and 6 through whatever is about sanctification. And then, so that's not it at all. I'm going to prove to you this morning that this is just a continuation of what Paul started in chapter 5 and verse 12. So, just a cursory reading and some limited commentary. Uh, we began many months ago our journey through Paul's four plus chapters uh, teaching us about justification by faith alone and the sole supremacy of the, gospel, of, of the grace of God as he espoused in the preaching of the gospel and that being our only hope for salvation and that being our only path back into a right relationship with God. So that's four, four chapters plus a little bit. And then in verse 12, he begins this great treatise regarding exactly how that has been accomplished and why we need no longer fear for our eternity. Now, I realize that we spent a whole lot of Sunday mornings on this section, and so it may seem like a lot of backtracking, but it is necessary for me to understand what's coming so it may be necessary for you as well, because this is all a continuing statement. So in chapter, or chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So we were dead in Adam, had nothing to do with anything that we had done, although we would certainly, and we have certainly gone on to prove that we deserved to be there, 
right? But it was because we were under the federal headship of Adam. If you remember, we had a couple of weeks where we talked about headship, all right? So it's the, we were under the federal headship of Adam. We were in Adam, as it were. So keep that in mind. We were born in Adam. And in verse 15 he says, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So, yes, we were in Adam, but now, because of God's wonderful grace and mercy in granting us to us justification, we have been placed in Christ. Just as our being in Adam brought, brought and guaranteed condemnation and death, our being in Christ brings redemption and life. We have been transferred from or out of the reign and rule of, and lordship of sin. That's where we were. We, we were under the reign and the rule and the lordship of sin. And now we have been brought out of that and placed into the reign and the rule and the lordship of grace. Verse 18 continues, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase that trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So while we were dead in Adam, dead in our trespasses and sins, that sin reigned and ruled over us. We had no way out from under it. It was our ruler. It we had no control over it, okay? Uh, we had no freedom to do anything at all. We were slaves to that sin. Uh, the law given to us, the law, okay, given to us, only magnifying our sin, sinfulness as we stubbornly rebelled against it. Sin upon sin abounding in our death and rebellion against God. But because of that one man, Jesus Christ's obedience, we have been made righteous and are guaranteed to enter eternal life in him and through him. All of this is Paul's exposition of what he's already told us, Drop back to verses 10 and 11. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, reconciled shall we be saved 
by his life. I'm having a really hard time talking this morning. Done too much corn shucking yesterday. <clears throat> much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Much more shall we be saved by his life. Now, uh, as we stated many weeks ago, that word, that statement should be saved in his life, not by his life. We're going to be saved in the state or the condition of the life of Christ. It says before, because before we were outside his life. We were outside his love. We were enemies. Now we are in the life of Christ. Therefore, our position has been changed. We were in Adam. We were in sin. We were under the rule of sin and its reign. We were enemies of God. Now our position has been changed, and we are now in Christ. And because of that position, being in Christ, our eternity is absolutely certain and secure. If God sent his son to death for us while we were outside as enemies, how much more will he do for us now that we are inside as his children? That's, that's Paul's whole thing. He's telling us, because of this justification, four and a half chapters of justification, because of that justification, we are now inside, we are in Christ, and we are his children. Now, this is the thing that I'm trying to reconcile this morning, and one of the drawbacks of going as in-depth as I tend to do. So I taught this way back in February, and some may not have been here then or maybe just missed that one day. So before we dive into verse 3 of chapter 6, we have to look all the way back to February to fix in our minds exactly what Paul is referring to here in chapter 6. So as we have stated over and over, chapter 5, verses 12 through 20, are an exhortation or an encouragement for us to rest in our hope of glory. That's what it's all about. You have been justified. Therefore, the only thing you need to, you don't even need to think about that stuff anymore. You rest in your hope of glory. That's what it is. This, because of justification, all this is yours. To rest in this assurance of our salvation. It's a marvelous treatise by Paul reminding us or reinforcing in our minds the guarantee that we have eternal life. But in verse 10, just prior to that, he tells us why any of this rest and any of this assurance is even possible. It's possible because we have been reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ, and now that we have been reconciled, we are going to be saved in his life. We are in Christ. Christians are in Christ. 
We've been placed in Christ. That's the important. We've been placed there. We were placed in Christ. We were born in Adam. I remember that. We have been placed in Christ. That statement is critical in the understanding of chapter 6. It's all about our position. We were born in Adam. We were placed in Christ. And so then last week we looked at Paul's prophetic answer to a question that hadn't even been asked yet, but he knew that lost, wicked men who care nothing for God or God's statutes, uh, but are only concerned about saving themselves from the fires of hell, would take his statement in chapter 5 and twist it into all sorts of monstrous ways. Remember where he said, we're sin. Bounded, grace did much more abound. He said he, he all knew that people were going to take that and twist it. For sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So sinful lost men see this and they think, well, more sin equals more grace. Sign me up for some of that. If we knew what sin was, that wouldn't be funny. I apologize for that vulgar statement, but I have known many people over the years that believed exactly what I just said. Uh, living like the devil while praying to a holy and righteous God. These people existed then, during Paul's time, even as now. These people are described by Jude in verse 4 of his epistle in this way. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So what character trait did these condemned, he says they were condemned long ago, what character trait did they show forth that would be seen as perverting the grace of our God? Well, quite simply, these were the people who may have been asking the question that was posed by Paul in verse, in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall, are we to continue in sin that grace may, event, may abound? Paul responds in indignation. He's shocked. He says, by no means. Meganoito, you remember that? Have you lost your minds? And Paul's answer, is what? We can never overteach this answer. Okay. As we said on last week, the key word in his answer is the we. We. We, how can we, being what we are, we who died to sin, when we were taken out of Adam and placed into Christ, that's what we are, okay? How can we still live in sin? Now, parapeteo. 
Live in sin as a style of life. Live in willful, habitual sin as a style of life. Paul did not say, how can we who died to sin still sin? That's not what he said, right? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in that sin? As a style of life. There is no such thing, contrary to what people will tell you, there is no such thing as a homosexual Christian, just as there is no such thing as an adulterous Christian or a fornicating Christian or a thieving Christian or a drunkard Christian. Christians can and do fall into some of these sins. But Christians cannot stay there simply because of what they are, simply because of their position, simply because of being in Christ. Get this. The position we are in is the position that we were placed into. We didn't decide to do that. Not that we placed ourselves into. There is nothing we can do that would place us in Christ. This is of utmost importance in understanding these next two verses. I don't think there are words to describe how important it is. If we don't understand our position, if we don't understand how we got to that position, there is no way we will ever understand the rest of this epistle, much less the rest of this chapter. So verse 3. <clears throat> Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, let's start with verse 3. Heard the statement, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. So in verse 2, Paul gave us his answer to the question that was posed. But contrary to popular opinion and numerous commentaries, that answer was not an exposition of the way of holiness and sanctification. It is a simple refutation of the charge that was and has been brought up against the doctrine of justification by faith and against the finality and certainty of our salvation in Christ. And so he says, God forbid, we are in Christ. How could we even think such a thing, much less act on it? What exactly is it that is true of the we, considering this idea that we are in or that we are joined to Christ? Well, he's going to expound on that here beginning in verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Oh, boy. Baptized. Keep using that word. Don't think you, it means what you think it means. Now, in order to understand the doctrine that Paul is teaching here, we have to clearly define this term baptized as it is used here and again in the fourth verse. Now, if you pick up those dozen commentaries that I talked about on last week 
and depending on the denominational upbringing of the author of that commentary, any one of them, there's going to be about a chapter-long exposition on the meaning and the mode of baptism. Go look at them. That's what they focus on. This, that's, for 30 years, that's what I focused on. Okay? Meaning and the mode of baptism. I could stand here for days and try to explain all of them, but we're going to touch on just a few of them. Y'all know that I came out of the baptismal regeneration crowd, and uh, they are known as the sacramentarians, if you will. This view teaches quite plainly and quite openly that it is the act or the performance of baptism that places us in Christ. And I heard this verse used, and I used it myself as a proof text that this was exactly the case. Baptism places us into Christ. Okay? Well, I know now that because of the proper translation of this verse, and hopefully we all know that such a view is kind of like putting the cart before the horse, if you will. All right? And that's as far as I'm going to go with that line of thinking, so as not to bring up any dissension into the matter. Other than to say that it is the Roman Catholic position, among others, that grace is transmitted in the water just as it is transmitted in the wafer at the Lord's Supper, which leads to the exaltation of the priesthood and leads to the exaltation of the church. So if you are a Roman Catholic, you have to have the priest, you have to have the church. Own, okay. Now, Protestantism, which is us, is a protest against all of that because it teaches the priesthood of all believers. Y'all understand that everybody that's a Christian is a priest, right? And yet in Protestantism, the problem is still there, which I know from experience. As I said, that's what I taught as well. And that being that such secondary issues, like the meaning and mode of baptism, are moved to the front of the line. And that's all evidenced by the aforementioned commentaries that I told you about. They move this to the front of the line. Uh, in which a particular denomination is attempting to exalt itself as being more righteous and therefore being closer to God than the one down the road that teaches something different. So just like the Roman Catholic Church, one is urged to seek life from their correct teaching instead of the teaching of those heretics across the road. Now, if you didn't grow up in the denomination I grew up in, you may not understand that. Sermons were about we're more righteous than those people are because they don't have baptism right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. So moving on, there are also those who reject this sacramentarian idea, and they say that the baptism referred to here means our baptismal vows. It's not anything the minister does. It is where we declare our faith and pledge ourselves to a new way of life. You 
see what that says? I declare my faith. I pledge myself. Just to focus on that. I, right? That these vows are what are what puts us into Christ. Something I said is what puts me into Christ. Well, in a sense, this is kind of correct. By submitting to baptism, one is in fact making a statement. One is in fact making a vow. But that is not the chief end of baptism. In any case, it is not the point being made here anyway. The thing that is emphasized here, the thing that is emphasized here is not anything that I do as a believer. It is what has happened to me that places me in Christ and joins me to Christ. Vital doctrine being taught here is the doctrine of our position in Christ, our union with Christ, not something that I may or may not do. Still others say that this means that we are baptized into Christ's influence. Again, there's something to be said for this, as Paul teaches a similar thing in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this is an important couple of verses for those who dogmatically claim that the word baptized means baptized and it always means baptized, and it never means anything but baptized. Well, I would agree with that, but that's it's because they don't know the definition of baptized. We'll find that out in a minute. These fathers, says Paul, were baptized into Moses as they traveled under the cloud and as they passed through the Red Sea. Now, this obviously means that they were baptized Baptized means literally immersed, which means placed into or placed under. So they were placed under his influence as well as his leadership. They were placed under the leadership of Moses, whom God had appointed, and in an indirect sense, through Moses, they were the people of God. Here in our text, the context makes that explanation impossible. Because what we are taught here is not that we have come under the leadership of Christ or under the influence of Christ. That's not what he's teaching here. It does result in that, but it goes far and away beyond that. We are united to Christ. We become one with Christ. We are in Christ. We are parts of Christ. Just as we used to be in Adam, we are now in Christ. Not merely as our influence, but as a unification. We become one with Christ. So that explanation of influence is again inadequate. One more which says that what baptism means here is that it is a sign of our belief in the redemption and salvation found in the death of Christ as a propitiation for our sins. Well, water baptism does that for sure. 
but it is clear, so very clear when read in context, with the entire section going all the way back to chapter 5, verse 12, that it means so much more than even that. This is a doctrine that takes us so much deeper than a mere declaration that we believe in this and that we subscribe to this. It goes beyond that to our actual union with Christ. Which brings us to our fifth explanation, which says that Paul is teaching here that baptism is a symbol or a pictorial representation. Now, my favorite pre- preacher on the planet, as I've quoted many times, Paul Washer, this is what he believes. He can be wrong if he wants to. Baptism is a symbol or a pictorial representation of a deeper spiritual reality, namely our union with Christ, our union with him in his death and in his burial. We go down under the water, which pictures burial, and then we come up again, which is a picture of the resurrection, a representation in a dramatic manner of what is happening to us spiritually. But is that what Paul says here? We are told that we are buried with him through baptism. Paul does not say anything about a picture. He says it is accomplished by baptism. He says that it happened to you. A picture or a symbol did not happen to you. The real thing happened to you. We get that? There's no room in Paul's teaching for pictures and symbols. The doctrine of our union with Christ says that we are united with him and all that happened to him. And the first thing that happened to him in this context was that he was crucified. Where is that represented? Where is that crucifixion represented if Paul is talking about pictures and symbols? How does water baptism represent crucifixion? I have been crucified with Christ. When did that happen? So no, baptism is not a picture. Baptism accomplishes something, and it leads to our union with Christ. So here comes the thing that I have been hinting at. To suggest that Paul is talking about water baptism here or that such was even on his mind in any way, shape, or form as he was writing this, is to give a prominence to baptism that Paul never gives to it. He even says that Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, he is not deprecating baptism in that statement, but he is certainly not giving it the central position, which so many suggest that it has, as it's used here in Romans 6. That's why all the commentaries, water baptism is the central position of that verse. That's what they talk about, not the union with Christ. Now, there are other places as well in Paul's writings that he discusses our union with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, he says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
So that's our union with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He does not mention baptism at all. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, yeah, that's water baptism. No, they're talking about water baptism. That's not what Paul's talking about here, though. <laughs> He's talking about the same baptism that we were talking about. It'll all get explained, I promise. And if it's not, see me after church and we'll we'll do better. Okay, but it's it's the same baptism he was talking about when he's talking about the Israelites under the, being baptized into Moses under the cloud and through the Red Sea. Okay. All right. So, now, since we've established that baptism here does not mean what we think it means, no matter how many times we use the word, then what does it mean as Paul uses it here in this section? Hopefully after our rereading of the entirety of this section, going all, that's why we went all the way back to chapter 5. It's a continuous thought process. Uh, and it's about our union with Christ. Hope we all are agreed that the truth being taught here by Paul in this entire section is our union with Christ. Okay, That's what he's talking about, our union with Christ. When I say all agreed, I mean those with an evangelical mindset, uh, not the liberals that see nothing beyond our making some inane or worthless statement that we believe in Christ and therefore are Christians. Uh, the majority of people you know uh, who say they're Christians. It's, it's just a statement. It has nothing to do with being united with Christ to them. Okay? They see nothing beyond that one statement. Uh, as John MacArthur says, do you know what your profession of faith is actually worth? That much. You can say whatever you want to. It doesn't change anything. Okay? But true Christians are agreed that union with Christ is the essential doctrine being taught. Even all those commentaries that I was telling you about, they still say that union with Christ is the essential doctrine that is being taught. So if we set that union in the front of our minds, united with Christ, then we take that fact and with it the statement that it is by baptism or through baptism that this union takes place, which leads to all the promises that he gave us all the way through, from, all the way through chapter 5, okay, all those promises. Put those two things together. Now, holding those two things together as being the important ideas, the question that of necessity arises is, what sort of baptism is this? What kind of baptism is taught in the New Testament which definitely says that it is a baptism 
that places us in Christ and joins us to Christ. What kind of baptism is this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look with me, if you will. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. And he says, for in or by, depending on which translation you're using, some say for in, some say for by, one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of that one spirit. Now, the theme of that whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, the theme of that whole chapter is the church being the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We are the body. We are all joined to him, and we are all joined to one another. Okay? It's just as interlocking. Okay? But how did this joining happen? The answer the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. It is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Not baptism with the Spirit. Baptism by the Spirit. It is the Spirit that baptizes us. Now go back to the actual definition of baptism. It is the Spirit that baptizes us. It is the spirit that immerses us. It is the spirit that places us into the body. The spirit that joins us to Christ. The spirit that places us in Christ. The third part of the Trinity is ever working in our regeneration, and it is he that places us into the body of Christ. And the expression Paul uses here for that is baptizes us into Christ. So, our conclusion is that water baptism is not in Paul's mind at all here. No matter what all those learned men and all their com commentaries might put forth, rather it is the baptism that is performed by the Spirit need to hold on to that thing, to the thing that matters, which is our union with Christ. It is because we are in him that we gain all of these benefits from him. Because we are in him, we have peace with God. We have full assurance of salvation. In him, we don't even think about things like continuing in sin that grace may abound. That one sin of Adam brought terrible consequences on all of humanity and all of creation. It is the action of Christ that brings all the blessings upon us now. We used to be united to Adam. We are now united to Christ. That is the doctrine that we have to realize that it is the Spirit who does the uniting. Not anything we say or do. 
great thing in salvation is that we are not only justified, that's awesome. Being justified is awesome. We are not only forgiven, that's awesome. We are being forgiven is awesome. But more than any of that, the greatest thing is I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. That says Paul to the Colossians. He says that's the mystery of the gospel. Christ is in you. So I think it's kind of sad that modes and forms of baptism have blinded so many to the awesome truth that's found here. Because when you get to that word baptize, everybody's got their own thought process. Everybody's got their own tradition. Everybody's got their own background. Everybody's got to find something to argue about. Okay? Now, all that being said, I am still for certain that water baptism is important. It is crucial. I have my beliefs about it that I will never back down from. It is a command that must be carried out. But Romans 6 is not the place to discuss it or to argue over it says the guy that just spent half an hour discussing it. <laughs> anyway, there are other texts to do that with. There are a lot of texts about water baptism in the Bible. A lot of them that you can discuss meanings and modes and stuff about. This is not one of them. This baptism was performed by the Holy Spirit, and it is what joins us to one another it is what joins us to our Lord and Savior. And it has no more to do with us getting wet than the Israelites traveling under the cloud or walking across the dry floor of the Red Sea. So now, we can move on to our study of the text, beginning in verse 3. He says, Do you not know? Now, this is a rhetorical question. He's not looking for an answer. He's assuming that everyone who has heard the preaching of the gospel already knows what he has, what he's about to say. It's common knowledge that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We have been, as, as Christians, baptized into Christ, which means we are joined with him, joined to him. And thus we are participants in what has happened to him. What does that even mean? Well, the first result is that we are joined with him in his death. Emphasis being on his death. Not primarily a death that we undergo, but his death. We derive benefits from his death because we are united with him in that death. When our Lord died, all Christians died with him because we were joined to him. Just as we sinned with Adam, we died with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not something subjective. It is not something that we feel. It is something that is absolutely true of us. Just as we sinned in Adam, we did not feel that we sinned in Adam. Okay? We know it for a fact. Because God says so. His word tells us so. So what Paul is concerned with here is this fact. That because of our union with Christ, when Christ died to sin, we died to sin 
with him. This is the thing that most commentators have missed in this chapter because they focus on baptism, which, which causes them to err in their analysis of it. This objective truth, this great thing that has happened to us, our union with Christ and our resulting position in him. Now, how that applies, Paul's going to go into later. But as of right now, the only thing he is concerned with is our position in Christ and our union with Christ. That's why we began this morning with our review of chapter 5. All men sinned when Adam sinned. All Christians died to that sin when Christ died to that sin. So now, we can continue with verse 3. He says, our being baptized into Christ is not something that is going to happen to us. It has happened. You cannot be a Christian without that being true of you. It is not something that we must try to achieve in some shape or form. It has already taken place. We saw that in the correct, correct interpretation of verse 2. How can we who died to sin? It has happened. Christ died to sin and we died when he died. That's the whole point of Paul's argument here. We are baptized into him. So what has happened to him has happened to us. We were baptized into his death. This has happened to all Christians, all of them. Paul gave another example to the Galatians in, two, in verse, chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's summary. That's Galatians chapter 2 is an entire chapter on justification. That's his summary of it. When I was justified, I was crucified with Christ. It's already happened. This has happened to all Christians, all of them. All of us have been crucified with Christ. You cannot be a Christian without having been crucified with Christ. Same idea that he's putting forth in chapter 6 here. He says, these are just things that are true of all Christians. That's why this chapter cannot be about sanctification, uh, as the majority of commentaries assert. It's not about sanctification. These are all things that have already happened. To everybody who is a Christian, dying with Christ, being crucified with Christ are just aspects of our justification, not some further step that we should be exhorted to take as if we had the power to do so anyway. When Christ died, he died completely and entirely to his relationship to sin, as Paul is going to explain in verse 10 as we get to that. Christ died to sin, not sin that was within him. Because we know that he had none, right? He died to his relationship to sin. He came into the world to save mankind. That meant that he had to put himself in a relationship to the law and to sin. And he did that. But when he died, he ended that relationship. Paul's point here is that just as Christ, when he died, died to the realm and the reign and the sphere of sin once and forever, 
we also have done the same because we have been joined to him. We, being in Christ, have died to the realm and the reign and the sphere of sin. It is the direct result of being joined to Christ, not because of anything that we have done on our own. Nothing to do with our subjective experience, because we all still can and do sin. But every, it has everything to do with our position and what God sees when he looks at us. That's the most important thing. You should be really happy. Well, you're probably not as bad as I am, but you should be really happy that when God looks at you, he don't see you. I'm really happy that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. Who does he see? His son. Okay? So then he continues in verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. This is the death certificate, so to speak. That burial was a death certificate. You don't bury people who are alive, right? That wouldn't be a good idea. We share in his burial, which is the proof that we also died when he died. So we not also are uh, so we are not also are baptized into his death. We are baptized into his burial. Christ truly died. His burial is proof positive that he truly died. He was really and truly finished with the life of this world and all that belongs to it. That is why Paul emphasizes the burial. It is a statement that the realm and the reign of sin unto and under which he had voluntarily placed himself in order to save us, had now been left behind. What does that mean for us? We have died and been buried, leaving behind the realm and the reign of sin. We who have died to sin, our being buried with him marks the end of our being under the reign and the rule of sin. But it doesn't stop there. So the death, the burial resurrection in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in newness of life not only are we joined with him in his death and in his burial but we are also joined to him in his resurrection what did this resurrection mean to him what does it tell us about him Again, we're not talking about the, the, the atonement. We did that for months. Okay? What we are considering now is what the resurrection meant to Christ. Well, the first thing Paul mentions is the way in which it was accomplished. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, meaning the power of the Father. These two words are used often interchangeably. Glory and power are the same word. Uh, glory is the essential character of God, his chief attribute. God manifests that glory in a lot of different ways. He manifests it in forgiving us. He manifests it in calling us in all that he does to us and all that he does for us. All that's from his glory. He also manifests his glory by exerting his power. Christ was raised by the glorious power of the Father. That's how it came about. Does that tell us? First thing it tells us is that Christ could not be held by the power and the reign 
of sin and death. In Acts 2.24, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death has tremendous power. The power of man is nothing by comparison. None of us are ever going to defeat death, okay? But Peter says it was not possible for Christ to be held by it. Why not? Well, Peter quotes Psalm 16 as the answer. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Death could not hold him. Try as it might, because he is the Holy One of God, not just a man. The new reign of, Christ, the new reign of grace and its power was being made manifest. And Christ is raised, and the defeat of the reign of sin and death is publicly announced. In other words, Christ's resurrection is the ultimate proof that he has finally and completely conquered sin and its reign and has finished with it. Christ not only came out of that realm of sin and death, which he entered on our behalf, he has risen to another realm, a new set of relationships. Paul calls this newness of life. Here it's only implied, but when we get to verse 9 and 10, it's going to be explicit. where He says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In this, we see something of what his resurrection means and involves and implies. And what we are being told here is that just as this is true of Christ, okay? This is another one of Paul's just as, so this, right? Because this is, this is. Just as this is true of Christ, we too might walk in newness of life. He walks in newness of life as the result of his resurrection, and so do we. We are baptized into him. We are joined to him. What is true of his death is true of us. What is, what is true of his burial is true of us. And what is true of his resurrection is also true of us same glorious power of the Father that raised him from the dead has done the same thing to us. The self-same power which raised Christ from the dead is the power that raises us from the death of sin which we entered into as the result of Adam's sin and the reign that it held over us. In him, in Christ, we died to sin. In Christ, the life we now live, we live to God. One very important result of this raising up is at this very moment, at this very moment, we are in a new life and a new realm, newness of life. This is not something that we are hoping for, not something that we are striving after. It is true of everyone who has been baptized into Christ. It's already happened. I died with him. I was buried with him. I rose with him. I am in the new realm. Just as he has finished with the rule and the reign and the realm of sin completely and absolutely, 
so have we also. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold. I love that word behold, right? Look and be amazed. That's what that means. Look and be amazed. Because all things have become new. Our citizenship is right now, at this moment, in heaven. Not going to be someday. It already is. Yes, we are away from home for a time. But our citizenship is and always will be in heaven. So no, chapter 6 is not a new section. It is not about sanctification. It is an exposition of what we already read in chapter 5. Just telling us this is going to happen, and this is why it's going to happen, because of our position in Christ. Verses 3 and 4 are the explanation of verse 2, which gives us our application for today. Remember that we said last week that Paul's original statement in verse 2 focused on the we, because we are in Christ. We are God. We are the body of Christ. It focuses on the we because of what we are, because of who we are. We. How can we who have been baptized into Christ, we who have been baptized into his death, we who have been baptized into his burial, we who have been baptized into his resurrection, we who have been born of God, we who are now living our lives to God, how can we, being what we are, being in Christ, having died to sin and having been raised to walk in newness of life, how can we, being what we are, continue to live in sin? It can't happen. The grace that abounded while we were yet in our sins is the grace that placed us into Christ so that we might die to that sin, and it is the grace that will guide us and direct us in our newness of life. And having begun that good work in us, we'll continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's why we're told to examine ourselves. Is Christ in you? Are you in Christ? If that is true of you, then you can rest assured that your past, your present, and your future have already been taken care of and that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can take you away from the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray.